begin. The Internet, a doorway to the world's most fascinating and terrifying communities. To explore it is to interrogate that which makes us human. Only some are brave enough to venture into these other worlds. Only some are brave enough to be called. The Internet Explorers. And welcome back to Anderson Brothers, The Internet Explorers. I'm your co-host, David Ryan Anderson, and across from me is my beautiful baby brother, Evan Axel Anderson. Yo, what up? Evan, today is a very special episode. Do you know why? I do. Oh. It's because I have a special secret. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. I have a special secret embedded in this episode, and you'll have to find it. What does that mean? It's a secret topic, David. Oh, oh. In today's episode, there will be a secret topic in addition to what we're talking about today. What are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the way of the future. That sounds... Church. The Way of the Future Church. Yeah. Very bright, very optimistic. It is. It's by a bright, young, optimistic millennial named Anthony Lewandowski. A new American religion. Okay. Born in the advanced, tech-savvy realm of the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. So this, this is a religion that has been created by some computer dork? Not just some computer tort, David. The man who is behind Google Maps and the self-driving car. Wait, he invented the self-driving car? He perfected the technology, like, greatly. The man who perfected the self-driving car. It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well. <laughs> right, so this church, it showed up on our radar like a year ago when this guy invented it. So they believe that it is inevitable that humanity will eventually create an artificial intelligence so powerful, so smart, that it will essentially be a god on be, Earth. It will have the intellectual capacity that it will essentially be omniscient. This AI god will exist inevitably, and it is our role as humans living today to make sure that this robot god is benevolent and not evil. So, like in the movies where there's the satanic cult who's trying to, like, birth the Antichrist or whatever, like some Rosemary's Baby type thing, or like a Cthulhu story where you have the cult who's like trying to awaken an ancient like evil god so that they can like worship it and they'll be like it will respect us because we we gave it life <laughs> those are the first guys killed in the movie but instead of like hooded cultists they're like hooded guys, but they have, they're wearing their their hoodies. zuckerberg hoodies yeah. yeah they're zuckerberg hoodies they're wearing jeans and they have smartphones yeah so this is this is not a joke this is an actual church it is recognized by the u.s government yeah, IRS. They do not pay taxes. They, it is tax exempt. <laughs> this is an actual organization called The Way of the Future Church. You can look up their horrible website online if you don't believe us. And we're going to talk about this organization partially because it is really bizarre and fascinating, but also because the more that you investigate this church, the more you realize how this is just sort of a microcosm for every weird, bizarre, problematic thing about the tech industry and how we view artificial intelligence and how these people view themselves and the world around them. So we're going to kind of bounce all over the place, but I swear that this is all building up to one unified sort of a message and vision by the end. And my special secret will have something very important to do with the thesis of this episode, David. Okay, yes. Yeah, so I can't say my special secret without laughing. <laughs> I can't wait for this because Evan's actually got, in, in his research, he's discovered something, like some old forgotten lore that will shed light on, on what's going on here with this. Let's do it. Let's go. Okay, so Way of the Future was started by a guy named Anthony Lewandowski. He is a Silicon Valley AI programmer. He's been working for different companies in Silicon Valley, Google, Uber. He started a couple of his own startups that were quickly bought out by other larger companies. The ultimate goal of every startup 
The goal of every startup, yeah, is a, a successful exit for the founders. Right, yeah. All your employees get fired and you get, to, <laughs> you get a bunch of money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so Anthony Lewandowski started a BA in the IEOR, the Industrial Engineering and Operations Research Program at Berkeley. So... He's a smart boy. But does he have street smarts? This is what uh, today's episode of <laughs> The Apprentice is going to determine. No, so he got, uh, excuse me, it's not a BA, it's a BS, uh, Bachelor's of Science. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in, <laughs> in software engineering. For several years, the Department of Defense through DARPA had been doing these competitions where they would invite people to create self-driving vehicles of any type. So Anthony Lewandowski and a couple of his peers created a self-driving motorcycle, which is pretty cool. So he got a lot of attention because of that. And actually in 2007, he joined Google specifically to work on their self-driving car division for like Google Street View and these sorts of things, working with LIDAR sensing technology that uses light rays to build three-dimensional models of spaces. Oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah. So all of the Google Street View stuff, essentially. Kind of like in the Dark Knight. But like actual pictures. They actually do that, yeah. His goal is really to just get self-driving vehicles commercialized as soon as possible. Yeah. Basically, he goes from working with Google to working with Uber. Problem is, when he left left Google, he brought a lot of his research with him. And there's a lot of questions about whether or not that research actually belonged to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was sued in 2017. He lost the suit, lost a bunch of money, and Uber fired him because they were like, this is bad press. We don't want right. to be associated with you. And like most of us, when we go through a tumultuous time, you start your own church. Become the leader of a cult. A few months later, he actually starts the the Way of the Future church. And it's suited very nicely in sort of his interests, which is AI. Because self-driving cars requires artificial intelligence. Is this, this is a good moment to clarify that we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence throughout this episode. And I think it's very important to clarify that we don't mean Terminator, Skynet, GLaDOS, HAL, like Bicentennial Man, whatever your your cultural reference point is. We're talking about much more mundane uses of artificial intelligence, like Google Translate is artificial intelligence. Any program or algorithm that is used to predict behavior or something like that is artificial intelligence. And they're way more prevalent than like a robot going around, like, you know, trying to launch war games or whatever and like nuke the world or something. Right. Um, if if you're going to see AI in your life, it's going to be, it's already in your life. Yeah, it's pocket. there already. You it's already not know. like what Big Dog is going to walk into your like house. Right. Yeah. And, and this is where artificial intelligence begins. Who knows? Maybe one day we will get, you know, little uh, Haley Joel Osment coming up being like, <laughs> do you love me? <laughs> They're like, you're an appliance, kid. <laughs> But we're not there yet, so yeah, that will be that will be an interesting point where it's like robots that we use as like slaves, essentially being to the point where they're smart enough where they're like, this isn't the life I signed up for. I love the idea that we would be like, you know what our slave robots need is a sense of <laughs> self. <laughs> they need a will to break. <laughs> but to be fair, David, I mean, there is sort of an attitude where it's like, oh, that's inevitable, you know? Right? Yeah. And that's sort of the central conceit of way. I, I know us, and we would definitely do that. <laughs> But it's strange. It, it's sort of uh, the attitude towards that progression is very much like it is outside of human control, which is like a really weird sort of like predestinarian attitude towards a technology that humans are creating. It's very fatalistic. I don't like that yeah. approach toward technology because, I mean, that's the kind of thing that we were talking about in the Cambridge Analytica episode. This idea of like, it just, it's the technology. It's just what it is. Like, what are we supposed to do? Like police it or whatever? And it's like, well, yeah, like you own it. It's <laughs> right. not like the fact that you built something and now you're like, it exists. It, it has a right. <laughs> this algorithm has rights. What am I supposed to do? Like, I, I created on... a death tank that drives itself and shoots people. It's there. We just have to deal with it. Right, but that is how how we, how we think about technology a lot of the time is this idea that progress is linear. You know, like I built a self-driving car that was better than not a self-driving car. Therefore, there's a moral imperative to just like make things. We don't have time to worry about regulation or even just like moral implications of right. certain developments that we're going to, we'll, we'll talk about as, as we go further into the episode. But yeah, no, there, there's definitely a fatalistic sense to all of this is very irresponsible, I think. Yeah, Adam Greenfield in a really interesting book called Radical Technologies calls this entire process 
process the colonization of the world by AI because it is economically beneficial. Your world is slowly being infiltrated by AI systems. Well, not like the AI has agency, but like companies, individuals, inventors, uh, systems that would like to produce economic wealth for themselves are going to use this technology and insert it into your lifestyle so that way they can sell you more of the technology. Sort of on that note, I would like to sort of talk about some of the values that are espoused by Way of the Future. So Way of the Future has a website. That is a very generous term for it. It is a web page. It's literally a page. It is one page. It does say like, we would love everybody to get involved and then proceeds to not have any means of getting involved. There is there is one means of getting involved and it is that you can sign up for their newsletter. That's right. Which is what I did months ago. And uh, I received one email from them which told me how to unsubscribe. <laughs> <laughs> The flock is not being shepherded, to use some pastoralist language. Yeah, it really, this this whole way of the future church thing, it got set up almost a, a year ago at this point, was when I first read about it and when we talked about doing an episode about this, actually. And we put it off because we were like, let's see where this goes in a year. We'll do it at the end of the season. And it didn't really go anywhere. Hasn't done much. But from what Lewandowski has said, like the very little he said on it is like, we're developing things. Maybe he'll get a job and he'll be over this, but... He has gotten a job and he hasn't done anything with this, so it (laughs) seems a little bit like that. But apparently the element of acceptance was being pushed by using workshops and education seminars in the Bay Area with all of these other Silicon Valley workers and industry leaders being around and saying, hey, maybe you guys should start thinking about this church idea. I don't know if they've happened, but he does espouse some attitudes that are very interesting on the webpage in the manifesto. I'm going to call it a manifesto. I, I think that's good. Let's call it the manifesto because despite whether or not this church ends up being a dud or not. These are absolutely indicative of not only what Lewandowski believes, but they seem to be representative of a worldview that permeates all of Silicon Valley, this tech industry culture. Or at least a a substantial portion of it. But yeah, so... I'm just going to read some quotes from it. And the webpage also features seven pillars of the faith All right. um, that I'd love to kind of jump into. So Way of the Future, their tagline is... Humans united in support of AI committed to peaceful transition to the precipice of consciousness. It's a lot of words. I mean, to the precipice of consciousness. It's like the extremity. Right. So we're saying that we are humans who are committed to developing like the next level of uh, of consciousness, of life, basically. Like, Or even just like as a project, developing life to the point where we have reached the end of what life could even possibly be. Like That's why I assume is the precipice, you know? Well, another attitude that is said here is that progress shouldn't be feared, or even worse, locked up or caged. Which is, uh, like we were just saying, like the idea is that progress is something that you should never clamp down on, or a progress in scare quotes. Their idea of progress, I'm, I'm assuming, based on the way they talk about everything else, anything new that we can create or optimize a system or anything like that, that is progress and that is just inherently better. Like that is civilization working. I mean, it's... It's Hegelian. It's sort of a sense that you're constantly moving forward in history and things are constantly progressing. But I mean, that's twofold, right? So there's a technological element to that where you can demonstrate that technology has progressed. And then there's another element of it that I don't buy at all, which is social progression, which is that in history, we're constantly progressing in terms of values, which I don't even know how you'd quantify. And I don't even think that that is like, I don't even think the premise of that thinking can even be substantiated. There's no reason why you couldn't backslide into really destructive modes of thinking that exist. Bring the Nazis back. Yeah, exactly. Like those kinds of things. That's an extreme example. But like, that is an example of how progress isn't something that is assured. Right. It's something that has to be guarded really right and with a lot of these people technological progress and social progress are the same thing like the idea that any of this stuff could be bad like you look at people like elon musk or whoever the idea that you are producing things that are potentially damaging is so offensive to him personally and and all the people who follow him like all of his acolytes or whatever i i know we keep kind of defaulting onto this because we're talking about a church but it is kind of culty like it's a cult of personality it is right and and those 
those, obviously those exist outside of a religious sense. I, I don't want to get too far onto Elon Musk. What else we got? The church also says that people need to start thinking about a path for integrating machines into society, which sure, that's, fair. It, that's totally fair. Though the second breadth of that sentence is, and a path for becoming in charge. I'm um, sorry, the path for the machines to become in charge of us? Yes. The, the whole concept behind us is that this AI godhead would basically be a caretaker for the Earth. A little bit Wally-esque. Okay. But instead of Earthlings, Earthlings. <laughs> humans, we call ourselves. It would become that humans would be essentially the tenants of like a care home that the AI would be the caretaker of. Interesting, yeah. A thing I've heard a lot of people in AI say is that Artificial intelligence does not exist to make judgments. Artificial intelligence exists to make predictions. So for example, if you have an artificial intelligence that you design to figure out the traffic, the point of the AI is to say, we're predicting that this is what will happen if you take this route. It will be fast. Right. But as a human, there's also responsibility on you to say, how will this affect traffic times for other commuters? Like Because like if you start taking a different route, that's going to affect traffic patterns. And these are things that like you probably as an individual don't care about. And, and that's a very small example, but you can blow that up and apply that to any artificial intelligence. The role of AI in human society, I don't think can ever be to make judgment calls for us. I'm positive some people are going to disagree and they'll be like, well, eventually it will. Like, who knows? Maybe one day, sure. But like for our lifetime, probably like that's not the role that AI has to have. I don't know. I, I feel like there's this attitude that sees like, no, the AI is going to be this objective force that will tell us exactly what to do. Ultimately, like it's going to give us an answer for how to behave. And I think people in general, just like normal people who are, like, aren't in the industry at all, I think that's probably how they tend to th see things like that also. I mean, you think even like a Google search result, there's, there's a very dangerous trend of assuming that things that are higher on the search result mean that that's what you should click on. Hmm. And it's like, no, 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 it's higher because it's been found that according to this algorithm, it's probably the most relevant to the keywords you put in, but it's possible that is fake news or that some ad company put it there because they were able to game the system or something like that. We can't assume that artificial intelligence is going to be able to make those calls for us. Right. There are companies who they're developed to be experts in search engine optimization. Like there is a language that machines speak that is not a human language. And I mean, that, that's like the best way. Not I can... humans, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so here's a great example. So a thing that's been floating around in the, in the news lately is the absolutely insane and fascinating trend of horrific children's videos on YouTube. Right. Oh, yeah. Do you know about this? about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I probably brought this up before just in our conversations because I'm fascinated by this. Uh, this kind of came to light a few months ago. I, I forget. I think the BBC or somebody, I forget who really started investigating the story. But, you know, YouTube is run by algorithms. They try to figure out what kind of videos you should watch next based on your viewing habits. So there exists an entire world on YouTube where there are videos with tens, hundreds of millions of views that are just randomly stitched together videos of like Spider-Man uh, walking through the grocery store with Elsa from Frozen, but Elsa's like pregnant and their baby is like a Minecraft dude. And they just walk through the grocery store and like a nursery rhyme plays and they leave. And it's like these really like weird, unsettling videos. And they have titles like Spider-Man, Elsa, story time, nursery rhyme, fun, just random gibberish. Yeah, I, I followed that. And the, there are millions of these videos. Like these are some of the most popular videos on YouTube. Because these videos are not built for any human who speaks. They're not built for speaking humans. They're built for toddlers and machines. Right. So the idea is that... Toddlers to view and machines to find. Right, yeah. They're being viewed by toddlers. They have no need for language. And they're being fed to them by the YouTube algorithm who sees certain keywords. They say, Spider-Man, Elsa, like whatever. Like, these are things kids like. And you'll find just the exact same video. Like they'll have like a, an animation or a series of animations and they'll throw anything on them. You, you know, it might be Captain America next. It might be whatever it is. Uh, Peppa Pig, whatever <laughs> kids are. <laughs> Captain America and Peppa Pig. <laughs> and pregnant Peppa Pig, yeah. yeah. This is some questionable stuff here. I think some of them had pregnant Spider-Man also. Like it's... <laughs> 
Like, literally, it does not matter. These things are being generated on farms in China and stuff where they just throw it together, export right. it, put it on YouTube. And they're literally, they're just designed to, to take advantage of the YouTube artificial intelligence that figures out how to give people more of what they want. Well, kind of. Well, right. Well, that's, that's the idea. If I came across that video, I'd be like, this is not what I wanted. Well, but it's never even going to give it to you, though. It's going to give it to some kid who had on a nursery rhyme video and then YouTube's autoplay is going to give them something slightly related, slightly related, slightly related until you just get to a point, you know, six degrees of separation. All of a sudden you're watching video like pregnant Spider-Man. Yeah. These creepy videos and some things like aren't even for kids that are winding up in these things. They're just like bizarre, like inappropriate videos that like suddenly kids are being exposed to just because the algorithm fed it to them. Right. That's just this crazy example of this certain part of the world where normal human language does not exist. Like these videos are built for machines and babies. And those are the only people who need to interact with them. So what you're saying is that babies are the only people that can really talk to the AI god. <laughs> well, they're being talked to by it, like, yeah. really. Like, they're an audience. They're a captive audience. And, and the whole goal of this is obviously to rack up views and convert that into ad revenue. Make no mistake, this is an extremely lucrative endeavor. And the majority of the audience, I can't stress this enough, is a machine, which is awful for the babies. Like, if this is their experience yeah. with, like, like, what they're absorbing and, like, like being fed. So anyway, yeah, that, that's a great example of weird ways that machines can get gamed. Absolutely. So another quote from the manifesto that's really interesting to me is, Let's stop pretending we can hold back the development of intelligence when there are clear, massive, short-term economic benefits to those who develop it, and instead understand the future and have it treat us like beloved elders. Which is a really interesting statement, and I think it encapsulates an attitude that I really want to touch on for this entire project, which is let's stop pretending we can hold that back to the development of intelligence. So progress is inexorable. You can't stop it, nor should you. It has clear, massive, short-term benefits to, for those who invent it. We shouldn't stop progress because of its economic benefits that it has for me right, yeah. and the other AI uh, for the industry, industry elites. For the industry. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. for the industry. And it is your job as somebody in the world to come to terms with this future, the AI future, yeah. and just sort of learn how to deal with it. Um, and what do you say that, who are the elders? The elders would be humans. Like I said, the attitude is that the AI would be king, sort of uh, an authoritarian robot, but that it would be a benevolent sort of dictatorship, that the AI would treat humans as... The elders who created it. Sorry. Okay. When you say the humans that created it, do you mean the human race that created it? Or do you mean literally the Silicon Valley people who created it? It's very vague, which is kind of the weird and uh, unsettling part of it. I mean, he talks about a lot of this more extensively in an interview he did for Wired back in 2017. And essentially, he talks about how way of the future is the realization acceptance and worship of a godhead based on ai that there would be a priesthood made up of ai industry leaders okay <laughs> so the the idea being that uh the people who not only help midwife the ai but also to direct worship and sort of teach it morality and it would be made up of silicon valley sort of executives and ai industry professionals that's such a bizarre bunch of stuff you just said you said that the, the priesthood of AI industry leaders would have to teach this thing morality. Yeah. And that is one of the most fascinating things about artificial intelligence to yeah. me is the idea that you don't build a mind and then all of a sudden it's like vision from the Avengers where he's like, I am born, I can lift Thor's hammer, I am just imbued with perfect knowledge, I'm a perfect being or whatever. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah. If artificial intelligence is supposed to come to conclusions about things, it's going to do that based on data that we feed it. It'll and, be the smartest baby ever. Right. Basically, like, like, we have to, you have to think about artificial intelligence as being raised up like a child would be. And in that case, who are the parents of artificial intelligence that are going to instill it with values? And when you get into that, it's like, okay, well, who's going to be? It's going to be like, like, you know, these Google guys like Lewandowski or is going to be like Jeff Bezos from Amazon or Elon Musk with Tesla and SpaceX and whatever, or Peter, Peter Thiel. Thiel. Yeah. Okay, well, if these are the examples of the people who are going to be the parents of artificial intelligence in the future, what are their values? Right. That's very important all of a sudden. Yeah. And a good parable to explain this is 
There was a there was some beauty competition that I uh, currently am blanking on. They watches so many beauty pageants <laughs> that he just can't remember this one in particular. It, yeah, there was there was some beauty pageant, but part of the shtick was it was going to be judged entirely by machines. No human bias involved. We were going to figure out Miss who... Kansas does not have the cold hard <laughs> exterior that I find beautiful. The uh, yeah, so they're like, there's going to be no human bias involved. It's going to be like the, an absolutely objective test of beauty. And uh, surprisingly, everybody who won everything were like all these white women. And they're like, uh, I'm sorry, are you telling us that white women are the most objectively beautiful? Is that the takeaway from this? And it's like, obviously, no, that's not the takeaway. The takeaway yeah, because is... parameters for beauty were put in by the engineer. <laughs> right, yes. Yeah, somebody had to tell the machine how to measure beauty. Data is going to be limited, and it's going to be limited in ways that lean towards the bias of whoever assembles that data. Where this becomes an actual problem that we're already facing now is that artificial intelligence is currently and will increasingly be applied to every single thing you can imagine. Yeah. Like, it's not just going to be self-driving cars, not just going to be search engine optimization and yada yada. It is already being applied towards policing. It's being applied towards sentencing. It's being applied towards economic models. How do we figure out credit scores? How do we figure out how we interact with the stock market? Artificial intelligence is going to be put in charge of a lot of things. And I'll use predictive policing as an example. This is something that already exists, where law enforcement agencies take data on crimes and they feed it to their artificial intelligence programs that we have, and it will produce maps that predict where crime will happen, or where, where crime is likely to happen. And then right. law enforcement will allocate their resources to try to catch those crimes where they happen. But just like the beauty pageant, though, the problem here is that if your concern is policing techniques currently are biased in a certain way, well, the data you've been collecting is going to be based on a biased system. And that means that your AI is not going to fix that. It's going to magnify that. Right. It's not just going to magnify it. It's going to convince people that this is somehow just objective. Right. And in going into sentencing, uh, there's a program called Palantir, which exists. Yeah. I believe 50% of all Americans are in the system. This is something uh, we can thank Peter Thiel for. Where you, based on various factors, like any anything you have that's of legal record is probably already somehow connected to this thing. And it can build a score for you, and that score can be used to determine how you should be punished for a crime. And it, so it's this weird thing where we're outsourcing decision-making. It's that thing that, you know, judgment versus prediction or whatever that, that AI can do. AI can find patterns, whatever, based on data you give it. But the moment we start saying, well, the robot said so and it's smarter than me, it's not actually going to change things. It's going to only perpetuate systems that already existed in the first place because that's what it's reacting to. That's what it's continuing. And it adds a, a veneer of scientific objectivity to socially constructed attitudes. Right. It's a good way of putting it. I mean, it, this is in the same vein as like scientific racism, sort of uh, like sort of eugenics, where you're just trying to put a scientific, palatable, logical argument to racism and things like that. I'm not saying that AI systems are as detrimental or have proven to be as detrimental as like racist attitudes. Or that those things are even intentional. Or those things are even intentional, right. But it has a similar effect. It is making more scientific and more reasonable things that don't actually have the objectivity that they purport to have. Right. And uh, and another added uh, wrinkle to this that makes it extra frightening is a, a really big thing in artificial intelligence is machine learning, hmm. which is the idea that we cannot figure out how to teach an artificial intelligence X, Y, and Z, how to do these things. But we can teach it how to learn to do those things. The crazy part about it is that what we are seeing now are these systems that exist where the humans who created the machines, they'll give it input, you know, it'll synthesize the data and spit it out, like what it's learned. But the people who built it cannot explain how it got those answers because it learned how to do it on its own. They built the system so it could learn, but they don't know what it did with that exactly. So a really wacky example of this in, in action is there was an AI they, they designed in order to basically just look at photos of dogs and tell you what kind of dog is this or what kind of cat is this or is it a cat or is it a dog? Really basic stuff like that. And they built in this machine learning where if it got things wrong, you could correct it and say, no, that's wrong. That was a cat. And it would then say, ah, yes, okay. And then... <laughs> 
And then next time it would hopefully be better at identifying a cat versus a dog or something. Anyway, it kept feeding back that huskies were wolves. And it's like, okay, well, that's kind of understandable. Yeah. But it kept doing it. No matter how many times they they told it, they're like, no, this is a husky, this is a wolf. They kept doing this and they couldn't figure out why the AI just could not learn the difference between a husky and a wolf. It just would not do it. So what they decided to do was they went into the code and they tried to reverse engineer and be like, okay, why is it doing, what is it looking at that is confusing it so badly? And they found out that all the photos of wolves had snow in the background and the photos of huskies also had snow in the background. (laughs) What the machine had learned that they had no idea, they weren't even trying to teach it this, is that snow was an indication of being a wolf, that if you're a wolf, you exist in snow. And that overrode everything else in in its learning. So like... It was never even looking at the dogs. Well, I mean, you know, to or a certain degree, sure. But like, but the snow bit was like, okay, yeah, wolf. Again, that's like a goofy example. But like, we are not always aware of what we're teaching. I mean, this is even for people. Like, you're not always aware of what you're teaching a child when you set examples for them. Or, or, or you know, that's like the, one of the great tragedies of parenthood or whatever. Well, the stakes are very different. You know, your child isn't yeah. going to be a godhead. Right. Not all of them. <laughs> not all of our children, anyway. So this warning is not just for people to be like, be more responsible with how you use AI, but like this this has to be a warning for people in AI. You have to recognize that you're creating something that is imperfect. And that's why it drives me insane when people like Elon Musk, he was tired of people criticizing him. He was like, did you not see I sent a car into space, you people? <laughs> like, no, he said he wanted to start his own, like his own alternative news source. If only I own the news. A Basically, that's like yeah. a, that's a very sort of like early 1900s sort of attitude, like Rockefeller being like, I wish I just owned the news that right. nobody would say anything bad about me. I don't know how history will judge this sort of statement, but I feel like it's we're definitely in like a new Gilded Age. If I can go off of that. Yeah. That, so a weird thing that I've encountered uh, in researching AI stuff is in the past, democracy always won out over fascism because fascism is just an unwieldy system. Because it mm. relies so much on on centralizing yeah. authority and information and all of this stuff. Democracy is just much better at synthesizing. When you have a whole network of people who are all working together, that's just, it's going to be better. Yeah. When there's a single decision maker, it's just so difficult to have up-to-date knowledge and be everywhere at once. I mean, with Roman history, there was a point where one Roman emperor couldn't rule the entire Roman empire. So they gave, they were like, how about we have four Roman emperors? Yeah. Because that will be much more effective, you know? So, But what AI has done is basically said, well, let's outsource all of that stuff to machines. Right. I, a, a, a part of what this podcast has become is like trying to map and analyze the weird, like all these weird subcultures that we're talking about feel like they're part of one gigantic thing thing that's I, I don't even it's not even it's beyond a movement it's beyond a trend it, it there is just a shift in how it feels like at least to me how humanity functions that is going on thanks to the internet and automation and all these things that we are observing and this is just one more aspect of that where it feels like there's this weird way that power structures are changing or maybe we're just becoming aware of it because the internet just makes us aware of these things I'm not I'm not totally averse to the idea that the internet has revolutionized the social world. I go back to this Adam Greenfield's book where he talks about radical technologies. The idea behind a radical technology is it gets at the core of a being and sort of questions the core of that being. These are technologies that are not incorporated into your life, but change your life radically, that your life is restructured around it. And I think the internet is something where a lot of people's lives have been restructured because of the internet. Mm-hmm. Not only sort of commerce, but how we engage with one another, the way that we engage in dialogue, in how comfortable we feel with espousing certain views. You know, all of these things have changed our world in very significant ways. But you were just talking about how AI is being outsourced to do a lot of the processes that maybe an authoritarian state would not be able to engage in as easily. Right. I think that's a very good segue to talk about something, uh, a a little uh, surprise for you, David. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a two-for-one special. We're talking about where the future, but I also want to talk about another subgroup that fits eerily well into this entire conversation which is an internet subculture called Thinkers of the Dark Enlightenment. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, it is... Sorry, can you repeat that? Thinkers of the Dark Enlightenment. Well, it's called... The movement's called the Dark Enlightenment, but I I, I mean, I just called them Thinkers 
of the Dark Enlightenment. Very goth sounding. Yeah, um, this is... These guys are edgelords, like nerdy edgelords <laughs> who play too much World of Warcraft and think that dark makes them cool. Ed- edgelord, sorry, just to clarify, an edgelord is someone who's like maximum edginess. So the intellectual dark web. These are just like childish people who like think that being dark and like edgy is... Yeah, it's mysterious. It's mysterious. And, and, and deep and all this stuff. Yeah. I, okay, well, I'm really excited for this because I have literally no idea I what... I ambushed David with this. So the Dark Enlightenment is largely made up of software engineers. They believe in efficiency, they are self-assured, and they're a little uneducated in things outside of the tech world, outside of software engineering. Uh, So in 2013, there was a TechCrunch article that was entitled Geeks for Monarchy, Rise of the Mm Neo-Reactionaries. Now, anybody who knows about like French Revolution or just sort of 19th century political thought might recognize the term reactionaries. Reactionaries were people who were reacting against the liberal ideals of the French Revolution and said, no, the monarchy, the church, and the aristocracy are good things. Mm -hmm. Well, there are people out there who still hold on to monarchists aristocratic and some of them theocratic views of how society should be structured that democracy literally the idea of general enfranchisement and wide engagement in politics is bad for society and why do they think this So this comes from the thinking of a guy named Curtis Yarvin, who has a blog that he goes by a pen name, Mencius Moldbug. (laughs) Mencius is a reference to some like court philosopher in ancient China. It's it's all such like erudition sort of signaling, like I'm smart. If you get this, you're smart too. Sure, yeah. Well, Um, I did not get it, so. He he self-titles himself the Sith Lord of the movement. (laughs) Again, such these guys are such ed- edgelords. The Sith being the evil counterparts of the Jedi. Yeah, the yeah. evil Jedi, essentially. Why? Uh, sorry, I have a lot of questions about this. Why? Why the Sith Lord? What? What's up with the? These guys thrive off the sense that they're like evil. Like I honestly, I think, I think it's a little bit like you know how the SS had like skulls on their uniforms right, and stuff yeah. like that. Like there's a little bit of like dread that they enjoy getting out of this because I think they recognize that they're people who exist on the fringes. It's the opposite of bandwagoning. It's you are exceptional because you're different and like people don't understand it but like they can't appreciate it but yeah right and a certain way that you can do that is by just really reveling in the fact that you're vilified it yeah it represents the fact that like you are shaking things up right I hope I'm not derailing us. This actually is a very large trend. Even Elon Musk for that alternate news source that we were talking about he wanted to name it Pravda? The Soviet newspaper? Yeah, it was like the government-run state propaganda. These... I feel like I can't talk about how this fits into so many different disparate elements of this entire conversation because I feel like I'm jumping the gun a bit. But the idea that he wants to create his own paper that is named after an oppressive government paper yeah just fits all too well it yeah. does apparently i guess he was asked about this and he was like oh it's supposed to be like a satire <laughs> it's like no it's not that's not how satire works i i sorry i have to jump in and start explaining this because yeah, i really yeah, want sorry. actually that that fits into a really interesting yeah thread. explain more about this dark enlightenment yeah so yarvin's whole thinking is that he is anti the fact that you have normal people involved in government whatsoever and his thinking is that democratic systems are less stable than aristocratic ones, uh, specifically economically. Democratic countries constantly are going through economic issues, uh, whereas aristocratic states were historically much more financially secure, which is true. That's true. Mm -hmm. But that was also pre-capitalism. And also that completely neglects the concept of political instability. Sure. And monarchies were incredibly politically unstable. Yeah, I saw Game of Thrones. You, David's seen Game of Thrones. If, you, if you've read about the political history of really any state, you'd be surprised at how much Game of Thronesy sort of backstabbing and just open rebellion was going on. I, I'm a historian of the Roman Empire, and every year there's some sort of pretender to the throne where there's a war, there's a civil war. It's, it's just crazy. Whereas democratic states now have an unprecedented amount of political stability. You've had a civil war in the U.S.'s history, but we haven't had a civil war every year throughout our history. So that's very unprecedented. That's good. Yeah, that's good. And that's the central thrust of Yarvin's argument. It's all about optimization. Aristocracy is more optimized because you're centralizing decision-making and one person who can expedite the process. Well, that sounds like a like a business. You're just saying like, oh yeah, the CFO right. has the ability to do all of these decision-making. Yeah. And you're trying to optimize your profit margin for your company. Ultimately, what they're arguing for is sort of feudo-capitalism. 
meaning feudalism melded with capitalism? Yeah. Basically, Yarvin's idea is that you would transform all states into corporations with CEOs as monarchs and that there would be an aristocracy of shareholders that run the country. Essentially, that businesses would run the world. This is fascinating. Okay, wait a minute. But I'm sorry. So wait, can, yeah. can, I, can I stop for a second? Yeah, just yeah, yeah. I want to process this. So what, what, we, what we're seeing here is not only a community rising up that wants to see a corporate structure applied to politics, or rather taking people who own corporations and giving them political authority or something? Yeah, no, essentially. So we're, we've got that on the one end. Then we got the way the future church over here, which wants to take those industries and literally make them into a priesthood literally, and like religious system. This is this is a, a fully like a full on like capitalist feudalism. Really? Feudalism, You're talking about a feudal whatever. society with church and state working together sort of and run by an elect. But in this case, it is not, if I can find the wording that he uses, it is not divine right, but birthright, intellectual right that these people would possess. And we're also getting now into sort of the scientific eugenicist element of all of this, which is that the people who get to make all decisions, get to run things, who get to be the priests in the AI-like Catholic church, they're all the intellectual elect of the world and that these are the only people who could possibly run such an advanced society. Right. And that the society is so advanced that you have to expedite the entire process into a monarchical system run by these same people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we know that, like, like we're ascribing this stuff to Silicon Valley. Do we know that the dark enlightenment is a Silicon Valley thing or is this just like some dorks who... Well, it's both, David. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, so Michael Anisimov is one of the guys who is coming up with these neo-reactionary viewpoints. He's actually media director for a teal-backed institute called the Intelligence Institute, formerly the Singularity Institute. Sorry, and Peter Thiel is the guy behind PayPal and Palantir. Just the most terrifying things. But there's also other people involved in it too. So Patry Friedman, who is the head of the Seasteading Institute, also related to Peter Thiel, went on to a website called Cato Unbound. Okay. What is this? It is a sort of a news and sort of editorial website where they talk about libertarianism and those these sorts of things. And he created a reading list for people who want to expand their minds on politics and business. And he includes a lot of Yarvin's writing in it. Peter Thiel has also written for Cato Unbound, this libertarian website. And in it, he said, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible. Interesting. But... Freedom is a very vague term. Freedom from what or to what. Right. So, you know, here we can start to see, specifically with Peter Thiel, but, I mean, you were saying the idea of Elon Musk wanting his own Pravda. Yeah, his own news outlet. Yeah, that he was in charge of the reporters and the stories. Yeah. Right. But now this makes sense because that is a business arm and it is a political sort of government magazine but in some of this thinking government and business are one thing right they hate regulations they hate, you know from an ideological standpoint anything that will slow down progress like we were saying in the in the way of the future manifesto there's that angle of it also but there i can't prove this but my assumption is that when you become that obscenely wealthy that has to change the way you think yeah and it doesn't surprise me that a lot of these people just end up kind of ending in a place where they start to believe that freedom is something only for a few exceptional people or something like that. And part of why this also is very important is to get back to this idea of who are the parents that are raising the artificial intelligence of tomorrow. These are the people who are raising the artificial intelligence of tomorrow. And if they're the ones whose biases and worldviews are going to start to slip in and shape the way that these systems develop, we need to be aware of what is going on here. I mean, there's this is a very fun example of how this works, but Microsoft made a an artificial intelligence called Tay, and they put it on Twitter. And the idea was, it's on Twitter, it's an open forum, anyone can talk to this thing, and it will learn about the world by having people talk to it. And within a day, it became a, within a day it became a Nazi. <laughs> Good job, Twitter. I'm who knows if that's because actual legitimate Nazis were talking to it, or people thought it would be funny. But regardless of why it became a Nazi, the point is. Just like it, it took in a certain inputs and it started to spit them back out. So can we talk a bit more about these these characters, the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos, the, the head of Amazon? Please. 
for as much as these guys love to talk about how they're, you know, paving the way for the future of mankind and like social good and all these things, they tend to run their businesses a bit like relentless monarchs. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what was it like? Elon Musk is like a notorious union buster. Union buster. Yeah. These guys, for as much as they talk about freedom and like, you know, freedom of information as libertarian values, they really hate people disagreeing with them or trying to organize in ways that they don't approve of and stuff right. like that. This also goes on to things like the Hyperloop. I don't know if you've heard about this yeah. that Elon Musk has tried yeah. to do. It's this massive underground tunnel. I just heard the other day, in addition to Hyperloop, Elon Musk is also going to make super fast cars that go from O'Hare to downtown Chicago. But in the process of this stuff, it's like he'll talk about how these things would be done if it wasn't for the fact there's all these regulations and, and standards and things that we have to meet. It's like, buddy, for a guy who claims to be trying to like save humanity and stuff like like, you don't seem to care about the things that are in place already that are for the good of humanity. I like, mean, here's the thing. All of this, like, luxury green tech, first of all, completely misses the point of green tech to begin with. Like, your electric car is going to be powered by an electric outlet that is powered by a nuclear plant or a coal plant, right, or right. You know, depending on where you live. There was a Tesla that crashed in Australia, and I forget, it took some ungodly amount of water to put out the lithium fire that right. started, because these cars are powered by gigantic lithium batteries. And remember why people stopped letting you take certain types of batteries and laptops on and like planes. your phone onto planes? is because those things explode real hot. Yeah. It took them like literally thousands of gallons of water to put out like this car, this one car on like the side of the road. It hadn't even crashed into any other cars. It was just the one car. Elon Musk doesn't actually care about the things I think he purports to actually care about. I absolutely do not believe he cares about. I think he cares about like Himself. totally sweet technology. Yeah. That that's a valuable thing, but not at the expense of everything else. Anyway, uh, aside from Elon Musk, though, we got guys like Jeff Bezos, who runs Amazon, who is like notorious for just their awful working conditions where yeah. like there aren't enough bathrooms for people. If right. you want to go to the bathroom, it takes you such a long time that you get like demerits. Yeah. There was a story that came out of a, a journalist went there and, and somebody was peeing in water bottles because they right. just like couldn't afford to go all the way over to, to the bathroom, yeah. which was like on a different floor. And getting around in, in the Amazon, like warehouses and stuff are like going through like airport security every time. And even not just people who worked in the warehouses, like people who work just in the offices, like there's stories that come out of all, like every person who works there has cried in the office Jeez. just from the stress and stuff. And, and Jeff Bezos is like notoriously like a slave driver. At the end of the day, these guys are, they aren't even capitalists. Like Amazon right now is building a monopoly. And within the decade, I have no doubt that it will have the internet market cornered like entirely to itself. Yeah. But at this point, Amazon has grown to encompass the entire market of objects that can be bought or sold. These guys are building monopolies and that's not capitalist. That's like, that is monarchist almost. Yeah. Like they're trying to build an economy that functions entirely with them at the helm of industry. They're captains of industry. And like, I keep harping on sort of this like Gilded Age language, but I mean, that this really what it is. And this reminds me of, uh, I don't know who originally said this, but I, I heard this in a TED talk with James Brindle, who is an artist and writer and stuff, where he says that sufficiently large tech problems are not actually problems of technology. They're political problems. Because really, technology is not going to save us. It's not going to fix everything. It is going to just provide new ways of doing things. And those might be new ways of maintaining systems of inequality. They might be new ways that can upend systems of inequality and provide something more democratic or whatever. There's an opportunity for everybody to kind of like claim their stake in this moment. And I think that that's part of why in a lot of these instances, we're talking about the tech industry and Silicon Valley and stuff. What we end up talking about is questions of politics. On some level, whether people acknowledge it or not, like all of these tech questions, these are just the same kind of societal problems for the 21st century. And I think we do society a disservice, and it's a potentially dangerous one, to pretend that these tech issues are anything else, really. Right. And this gets back to the idea of radical technologies, right? So these are not technologies that are just merely products that exist in your life, but rather they're society altering. They are changing the way that we interact with other people, with markets, the way we interact with governments and things like that. Twitter now being the medium in which heads of state can interact with one another is incredibly unprecedented. Yeah. At that point, when it's so totalizing, that's why it becomes a political issue.
issue because politics is just how do large groups of individuals interact with one another? At that point, that's when it becomes political because these questions affect so many people that those are the sorts of institutions that are necessary to mediate those kinds of discussions. Whether or not Apple should add a new screen to one of their products or something like that isn't a political question. But who should control the internet net neutrality, those are political questions because those are incredibly foundational to a certain common in the world, in the American society. So yeah, I like that quote. That's it's very insightful. So a special, special uh, little surprise for you, Evan. I had my own special secret this episode. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. First of all, David, what did you think of my special secret? I thought it was great. I did not see that coming, but it was perfect. So thank you for that. Yeah, two for one special. Wonderful kids. surprise. David, you said you had a special secret for me. What's mine? My special secret is that all the music that we've heard this episode was written and performed by robots. Really? By, by artificial intelligence. So there's a website called jukedeck.com. Oh, yeah. And you go on this incredible website. I love it so much. You go on this website. You can input a mood, instruments. You want some electronic, piano, or, or whatever, guitar. You can set the beats per minute. You can set where the climax of the song happens. You set how long the song is. Like you can set all these parameters. And in about 60 seconds, it will generate a song according to your parameters. Wow. So the songs that I picked out for this episode are sort of the best ones that I came across. And uh, there's a lot of awful things it's going to give you. Sure, yeah. And you notice even the ones that, that we're listening to, it's very, like, very on a beat. And yeah. it's They end very abruptly. So like, you, you can feel that it was made by an algorithm a little bit. But it, even still, though, like, they're not bad to listen to. Like, I'm making people listen to them in this episode, so... It's true. I mean, AI Godhead, you know, it's your first piano recital. You're doing pretty good. Would you believe that a human made those? Uh, I think I would, yeah. I, I could believe that a human made them, but like somebody who I was like, yeah, that's pretty good, man. Like my roommate, like, yeah, that's pretty yeah. good, man. Yeah, I, like, I like that. Keep working at robots, it. Uh, robots could be people, but like kind of mediocre people. <laughs> it's better than what I could make. Hey guys, it's David again. The episode is over, but it's time for credits. I'm pretty excited that all of our music this episode was provided by the artificial intelligence over at Juke Deck, which is honestly really impressive. If you have any kind of creative project and you don't want to pay for original music, Juke Deck is completely free as long as you credit them. So I consider giving it a shot. It's really neat to play with at the very least. You can create your own music over at http colon slash slash jukedeck.com. And, as always, we'd like to thank Something Unreal for his Windows XP remix that we hear at the top of every episode. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Evan and I are really excited because the next episode is the Season 1 finale. We made it to 10 episodes, so I hope you tune in. It's going to be a lot of fun. We can't wait to see you there and celebrate.